Father, we, we know that we have to be taught by your Holy Spirit. He is the one that inspires, that leads, that guides, that gives us a direction in which we are to head. I pray that we would train ourselves to hear his voice, that as he speaks to us and guides us in truth, that we'd be able to tuck it away and use it for the benefit of ourselves and for all those around us. Help us, Lord, not to be complacent or apathetic, especially as we're looking at the days in which we live. We need to be all that much more strong and stout and firm in our faith. So, Father, as we do that this morning, going through your word, I pray that you would minister to us, speak to us, guide and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. Now, in the year 1703, there was a boy born to his father and mother, Susanna and Samuel. Jackie was the nickname they gave him, and he was number 15 in the line of 19 children. Hallelujah. Yeah, even though it seemed he would be just one of many children in a large family, his mother believed that he had a special purpose lying ahead for him. Because on February 9th, 1709, around midnight, Samuel, the father in the household, was awakened by somebody shouting in the street, fire. He quickly ran to the nursery where his five youngest children were sleeping, and he aroused the family maid to quickly lead the other children to safety. The remaining children had made it out from the house, with some climbing through windows and others making exits outdoors of this burning house. All seemed to be safely outside the house that was ablaze, except for little six-year-old Jackie. Jackie was still sleeping, but because of the light in the room that was generated by the fire. He thought it was becoming daylight early uh, in the morning, and he called out for the maid of the house. At that time, Samuel, his father, heard the little boy and quickly ran into the burning house and tried to make it up the stairs, and his attempt at saving his son was dashed because the stairs collapsed underneath him because of the fire. And thinking the life of his little son would soon be snuffed out, he knelt down and commended the soul of his son to God. And little Jackie tried to run through the doorway to escape the flames on the second story of the house that were engulfing the ceiling in his room. And since he wasn't able to do that, he immediately turned around, hopped up onto a dresser near the window where those standing outside could see him. Immediate appeal was made to get a ladder to get up to that second story window and to rescue the little boy from the hands or the clutches of the fire that was quickly approaching upon him. Well, the ladder was not arriving, and so two men, one standing on the shoulders of the others, was, was able to reach up to the second story window of the house, and they quickly pulled Jackie away from the house, and at that precise moment, the entire house collapsed, came down. His mother must have thought that it was a miracle and that her son had been spared. She thought from then on God had a special plan for the life of her son. Jackie did make it to adulthood to weigh a whopping 130 pounds, some say 120 pounds, and reach a height of 5 foot 6 inches tall. And he had a pretty dominant nose in the center of his face. He went on to write that he was a brand plucked from the burning is what he wrote in his journal later on. He accomplished much for the Lord during his lifetime. After all, his father was in the ministry, and he was full of good works, faithfully moral in his character, and orthodox in his beliefs. He ministered to the poor and needy, providing food, clothing, and education. He considered both Saturday and Sunday to be Sabbath days. He was well-educated in the scriptures, Thanks to both of his parents, he prayed often, fasted, and gave regularly to the work of God. Jackie even went on to form Bible societies. That's where a group of men would get together and they'd talk about the scriptures. And he ministered with his younger brother, Charles, as his good, and with his good friend, George. Maybe that's a hint of who this is. Jackie's full name was John Benjamin Wesley. His brother was Charles Wesley, and his good friend was George Whitfield. 
Now, Whitfield would be considered a reformed believer. They had a split. They had kind of a falling out between the Wesleys and George Whitfield. And, of course, Wesley was attributed with starting Methodism, the Methodist Church, and from that, the Wesleyan Church. Now, all three would go on to be a part of the first great awakening in the United States from the 1730s to the 1740s. And John Wesley, like I said, is credited with starting the Methodist movement, and there was a split. And even during that time, Benjamin Franklin, he would go and listen to George Whitfield preach. And he was a little bit of a scientist and inventor. He was a deist. I would not necessarily consider Benjamin Franklin a Christian. Uh, He was also a part of the Masonic Lodge, of which this building used to be a part of. Uh, And he did that in France. He was the president in France of the Masonic Lodge that was over there. But he would go listen to George Whitfield. And he said, he wrote down that as he listened to Whitfield, he would walk away. And he noticed that in the town where Whitfield was preaching, up to 30,000 people could hear him the way that he would preach. And at the age of 35, this is where Charles Wesley, or excuse me, John Wesley, had 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 an experience known as the Aldersgate experience. He was sitting, or he was getting ill. He was sickly, and he wasn't quite sure of his salvation. He was so worried that he hadn't quite done enough and he did not have a peace on the inside. And he recorded in his journal what happened to him on May 21st, 1738. This is what he wrote. I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one of the readings of Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works In the heart, through the faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This is at the age of 35. He had done all these works for God prior to this. And at the age of 35, he got saved, and yet he had already accomplished so many things for the Lord. Now, some would say that this may not have been when he got saved. They might offer the opinion that he was simply filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit at Aldersgate, and I'll leave that for you. Uh, And you can judge that based on what he wrote in his own journal. Uh, Nonetheless, up until that time, he was trusting in his own abilities to maintain his relationship with God. And if he was not doing, then he was not believing. And so he placed all of these tasks ahead of simply trusting in Christ. And it took the influence of Peter Bowler, a well-respected Moravian Christian, to explain to him, to lead him in the faith of what it meant to have great assurance of salvation. And this is exactly the same thing Paul is raging against those who are Judaizers in the church of Galatia, that they are focusing on the works. And those Judaizers felt that if you did the works along with trust in Christ, then everything would be fine and you would have peace in your heart, assurance that you would be saved. And Paul uses a metaphor of childbirth to show that he is in pain over their decision to continue to follow the law and not just simply believe. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. He goes on in verse 21, tell me you who want to be Under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So he's setting something up here. He goes back to the story of Abraham, located in the book of Genesis, which is the first of five books of Moses. Now, the Jews, when they saw the five books of Moses, they called that the law. Of course, all the other books, the prophets and poetry and all of that, that was considered separate. And some, some of the Jews didn't even hold to the teaching in those other books, but they considered the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of those books were considered the word of God, and that's what they held to. 
He goes on to say, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Now, what is he doing here exactly? Introducing these kids, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. Well, it's good for us to remember that the Judaizers were Jews. And when they looked to the Old Testament, they would understand the application that would come out of that. And they believed that if they were physical descendants of Abraham that assured them of salvation if they kept the rest of the law. Simply, if they were born of the lineage of Abraham, that's it. That's all they needed to do was be saved. And again, follow the law best you could. Uh, That was the simplistic explanation for how they got saved. Now, me personally, my grandfather's name was Markowitz. My mom was half Jewish. I am a quarter Jew. I have enough Jewish blood in me to have been sent to a concentration camp in World War II. But by the grace of God, that war was won. Didn't have to worry about it. And I could say, well, I could appeal. My father, Abraham. I come from the line of Abraham on one side of my family. And I could appeal to that. And you would look at me and say, well, that's ridiculous. You're only a quarter Abraham and if you wanted to go back and proselytize to Judaism well you could do that but if you followed the law you still would not be saved under the law even if you were a child of Abraham but both Jesus and John the Baptist warned the Jews that being a physical descendant of Abraham did not entitle them to salvation and that's what they truly believed because the promises were given to Abraham and the generations that came after him John the Baptist he says this in Matthew chapter 3 beginning in verse 7 but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing he said to them you brood of vipers and that's a way to influence friends and win enemies right you show up to some place imagine going to somebody's house and you walk in you snake that's what the, that's what he did Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Not only does he insult them, but he tells them, and it's in the vernacular of our day, he says, and you're going to hell, is what he's telling them. <laughs> Would you be offended if somebody said that to you? Uh, especially if you thought you were righteous in the eyes of God? Most certainly. Well, Jesus told the Jews the same thing. And I'm going to read this from John chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. He says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the father's presence and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. So not only did John the Baptist insult them, tell them that they were going to end up being judged in hell, but Jesus comes along and says, Satan is your father as well. And and so Jesus and John the Baptist and, of course, Paul later, they were all pointing at the Jews and calling them hypocrites. Jesus said that over and over to them and that they were not true children of Abraham, even though they counted their lineage, their DNA, right back to him. Now, of course, both Jesus and the Gospel of John and Paul in the letter to the Galatians are reminding the Jews that Ishmael born in a natural way, would have had the same status as his mother. And that's the whole point of this little section in Galatians. He's trying to let them know that Ishmael, who was born in the natural way, is representative 
of those who are in the world, those who are born in the natural way. For instance, we all came here through a father and mother. The mother gave us birth, and we reside here. And you ladies, I think most of you have children, and it will just go on from generation to generation. That is the natural way. We are all born into this world. Well, into the next world, we have to be born into that again. But digressing a little bit, Ishmael, in Genesis chapter 16, if you recall the story, I I talked about it a little bit last week. Sarah, Sarah was old, 80 years old or so, and and she could not conceive. and, And they really wanted to have a son. And, of course, she went to Abraham and said, Abraham, take my slave my servant woman my maidservant and sleep with her and you can birth a son through my maiden Uh, and that was acceptable in that particular culture to do that but the child would have been considered sarah's child not the maid that was with her and so abraham willingly agreed to this we have nothing in scripture that says he objected But Ishmael was still the son of a slave woman, which made him a slave as well. And we are told that a slave will never share in the inheritance of a son, a natural-born son from the father and the mother, a son born of promise. And so the, the children of Ishmael could be considered people of the world. They are born not into the kingdom of God, but they are born into this world. And that's even why Jesus would tell the Pharisees, you're listening to your father. Satan is the king of this age. He is the king over this world. And, of course, Jesus died to redeem the world and all who are in it, all who would want to be redeemed. But that is who Ishmael represents, the unsaved. And, again, back in John eight thirty four, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a song belongs to it forever. And also, Romans seven fourteen says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So the world is a slave to sin. Part of the problem we've had in Christianity all through the centuries is we expect the world to act like they're Christian. But they're a slave to sin. They have to do what their nature dictates. When we get saved, we get a new nature. Not that our old nature is done away with. It still resides in us, but we do have the new nature. We can choose to submit to the new nature or submit to the old nature. And the two, we are told from Scripture, are always in conflict. They want to dominate each other. Romans 7, I've said it several times, Paul talks about that, how the Good things he wants to do, he is not able to do. So the unsaved will never share in the inheritance of those who are saved, those who have been born from above. And then there was Isaac. Isaac was born as a result of a promise, and he was born naturally. Sarah was 90 years old. Again, hallelujah for that. 90-year-old woman have a baby. And Abraham was 100 years old. Hallelujah for that, a hundred-year-old man having children. Can't you see that? Grandpa and grandma, but they're not grandpa and grandma. They're they're mom and dad at that age. And, of course, uh, Daddy, will you play with me in the sand? Just a second, I'm coming. You know, just barely get over there. Now, I'm sure the his physical makeup was probably much better than even mine today. That's just uh, how they were. He was closer to the original couple, Adam and Eve. And I think that we are degrading uh, as we get farther away from the original couple. This is the law of entropy, where everything tends to go from order to disorder. Our hair thins, our teeth fall out, our muscles sag. My wife looked at me one time and said, you've slipped. You know, where it goes from the shoulders a, a little bit down. And, and, of course, that happens. Everything slips and sags. And, you know, my, my feet have broken. I, mean, I have more of a flat foot now. And the arches are gone. It's that weight that pulls us down. And, and so as we get older, it becomes more difficult. And we appreciate the young generation, but from afar. We don't necessarily dive right in with all of them. So Isaac represents those who are saved. 
those who are born as a result of a promise. And that promise is crucial. Uh, Abraham was promised that the Messiah, that the nations would be blessed through his lineage. Of course, he got that promise before there was ever a child born. And he said, when Isaac was born, you will call him Isaac, which means laughter or rejoicing. Uh, And he was given life through Sarah, which had a womb which was dead. Now, if you get a grasp of that, how that connects with Christ, there are so many types in the Old Testament that you can point to. For instance, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a type of Christ. If you look at the the tabernacle, what was it covered with? It was covered with, they think, sea cow skins. Now, I don't know if you've seen a leather skin but that's what it was covered with. You'd look at that and go, oh yeah, uh, okay, it's a skin uh, that's just kind of draped over the tent. And on the inside, everything was covered with gold and there was blue, purple, and scarlet yarn in there. And there was a lampstand. And of course, Jesus is the light of the world. And there was the showbread. If you walked into it on the right-hand side, you'd see the, the 12 loaves of bread, which is there. And Jesus is the bread of life and the sacrifice you you go to get washed outside in the laver and the laver of course we need to have our sins washed white as snow and then there's the altar of sacrifice and jesus was placed upon the altar so to speak all this is metaphorical but that that is a type of jesus christ the tabernacle and we want to pay attention to that well you look at sarah and she is the one that had a child born of a promise and it came out of that which was dead because jesus died we get life if you take her womb so to speak that was dead it was made alive jesus was resurrected and because of that we now have life and both of these are a result of a promise god promised to send jesus the messiah and he would die resurrect and because of that sacrifice that he made then through the blood we have our remission of sins and so isaac represents those who are saved and jesus talks about this being saved as a result of a promise in john chapter 3 where he's talking to nicodemus in verse 3 he says i tell you the truth no one can see the kingdom of god unless he is born again the best translation on that would be born from above first we are born from below then we have to be born from above of course nicodemus did not understand this he said how can a man be born when he is old surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born right oh that that's not going to take place so obviously he must mean something else jesus answered i tell you the truth no one can enter the kingdom of god unless he is born of water and the spirit now some people misinterpret this or uh, relatives over in the church of christ they would say you have to be born of water baptized and born of the spirit you get the spirit when you're baptized that's a mistranslation of the text here What's he talking about? He's talking about physical birth here and spiritual birth. He's not talking about baptism. Do you see the word baptism there? I don't see it there. But that's where, and uh, the guys I was listening to that I disagree with the eschatology on, they're saying there's eisegete and there's exegete, which is completely correct. But this is a case of eisegeting. Eisegeting is where you take a square peg you know, the, having a, a grandson, you know, they, they have those little stars and you put them in the bucket and then the round thing and you put that in the bucket and the, the square or the cross, whatever it is, and you put those in the bucket. They're, they're specific holes that those shapes are supposed to go in. Well, take a square peg and you ram it into a round hole. And, of course, sometimes these little toys that kids have, they have little hammers and you just got to ram it in there. So if you say born of spirit and of water... You're ramming it in if you think that it's baptism. It's not baptism. Born of water, what happens? What's one of the first signs that a baby is going to be born physically? The water breaks, right? The amniotic sac, the fluid flows out, and it's time. Time to get to the hospital, do the heat pant and the kegeling and all of that. You've prepared for the birth of the child, and it's born in a natural way. That's what's being referred to here. But then there's being born of the Spirit. How do you get born of the Spirit? Well, Jesus even qualifies this in 
verse 6, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So he's talking about a birth. You should not be surprised at my sayings. You must be born again. And of course, we know that this happens by confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That's how we are born again. But for somebody in the world, when they hear that for the first time, they're going, what? And we say, they don't quite get it. What What do you mean? These... These words are spiritually discerned. That it's what we believe gets us to heaven? Yes, that's it. There's nothing more to that. That's why Paul was so upset. He's going, you guys, it's not the sacrifices. It's not the circumcision that gets you to heaven. It's belief on the inside. In Romans chapter 9 verse 6, we have a little bit more here on Isaac. He says, it is not as though God's word has failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purposes in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, but then... Shall we say, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It's by the mercy of God that we get saved. It's by the mercy of God that we get to go to heaven. So Sarah's womb was long since dead. Out of death came life. Out of the death that Jesus, we were given life. Jesus gave us life by dying and resurrecting. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it reads, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it even says it in scripture. He's the one that birthed us. The dead womb became alive and give us life. Verse 23, back in uh, the letter to the Galatians. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. For the woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai that bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. So remember, her son was considered a slave, born in the natural way. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. By the way, where's Mount Sinai? In Saudi Arabia. If you go over to the Middle East, uh, right below uh, Israel in the land of Egypt, of course, they, they conquered that area and they gave it back to Egypt. There are many who say, well, it's the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai is there. It is not there. It is crossed the sea, the Red Sea, and it's over in Saudi Arabia. And by the way, they're, they're making plans to open up that area for tourism. Uh, where, and there are artifacts there. They believe that when the water flowed from the rock that is over there in Saudi Arabia, all these biblical sites, and they have been closed off for just decades and decades. But now it looks like they're going to open it up because they're thinking all the money they can make by bringing the Christians in and seeing all these areas where Moses was and also the Jews. And, of course, Saudi Arabia is now friends or they're working towards having a friendship with Israel along with the United Arab Emirates and some of the other Arab countries over there. So you could see this probably taking place. Verse 25, going back to that. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. So he's saying, wrapping it all and putting it in a bundle, 
you have the Old Testament law, you have Hagar, which gave birth to Ishmael, and that's representative of the world, and even Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, which is God's city here on earth, he's saying that is either or also under the law. Everything was practiced in Jerusalem, that's where the temple was, that's where the sacrifices were made, and that is of this world, that is of that particular covenant, that particular dispensation, that's where... God set things up, used the law to point everyone to the future sacrifice of Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 26, but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother for it is written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children, break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, what's being talked about here is a reference to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. It reads, more are the children of heaven than are the children of Israel. So, again, what is being referred to here is the children that are going to be born into the kingdom of heaven are more than the children of of Israel, this earthly dwelling place that is here. Because both Gentiles and Jews were going to be combined to become the people of God that would exist in heaven. Now that new Jerusalem is going to come down. We know that in the book of Revelation it talks about this, what it's going to be like. Uh, our dwelling place here, it's okay. You know, as I was, I was sitting at my desk this morning and I was looking at the desk and I was seeing where the the stain on the wood is kind of wearing through a little bit. And that particular room in our house, I just painted not too long ago. And I, I did some stuff to make it the office there. But in the hallway, I got some work to do. You know, the, the, uh, the floor is still cement from a flood that happened a few years ago in our kitchen. And I got to take care of that. And I started pulling off the baseboard. And part of it's off and part of it's still on. They're like, what you get done? you? fix this thing you know i'm looking at it it just needs to fix and and then i'm looking at the shower and uh, oh, this, oh man i gotta go through and i gotta fix this thing and you know i look at the house on the outside and look at the roof and the church and uh, all this stuff keeps on de- decaying it's the law of entropy it just keeps on going bad and along with our bodies all the stuff we own and it's just rusting the new Jerusalem's not going to be like that it's going to last forever remember when the jews went through the wilderness their shoes didn't wear out. You'll be able to wear Nikes for, not Nikes, maybe another company, maybe. <laughs> Whatever the tennis shoe is going to be, you'll be able to wear it forever. It, it will never wear out. And I know that may be disappointing, like, well, aren't we going to go shopping anymore? You know, is that going to happen in heaven or not? I don't know exactly how that's going to work. Are we always going to wear just white? Is there any other color that we can wear whatsoever? I have no idea what God's going to do, but we're going to reflect the glory of heaven up there. And the foundation stones are all these different colors. When I grew up, my father would take us down to the desert. We'd had this Plymouth Fury 3 station wagon. And it came from Bob Bauer Motors in Lemon Grove. Bob Bauer was my uncle. And we'd get a great deal on this station wagon with a 383 police special engine in it. And that thing just cruised. And we had the rack on top. And you could sit in the back of the station wagon. And you could look at everybody that's driving behind the car because the seat faced backwards. And you would wave like this. And we were small enough. And we could fit between the section of the back seat and the middle seat there. It was just a wonder of a car. And that was one of the first cars I drove. It was wonderful in high school, that big old station wagon driving around. Nothing could pass me. It was so fast. It just just great. We went down to the desert in that and my dad would take these sand filled roads in that car and he would just be driving down these roads with Kia's never stopped. And he just kept on going through and we'd look for rocks. And we get these rocks and we take them home and we would tumble them in a tumbler. And all these colors that would come out on these rocks was just incredible. I couldn't believe the colors. Or if you go to the uh, San Diego County Fair, the Del Mar Fair, which I like to call it, and you go up to the Rockhound uh, exhibit up there, all the colors and the agates that are up there, just beautiful. Well, that's the foundation of heaven. And I believe it's going to be radiating light out of all these foundation stones. And the, the, uh, the gates that are there are made of pearls. One pearl is going to make the gate. What, 
how big is that clam? You know, you, the, the city of Jerusalem, it's about 1,200 miles by 1,200 miles by 1,200 miles. And there's 12 gates, and they're never going to be shut. And then Jesus is in the center of that. And we each are going to be living there, and we are going to be radiating light. And it's going to be, it's loud. Have you ever gone to a concert, and you've been up by the speakers? It's just boom, boom, boom. It's just real loud. There's going to be singing and rejoicing all the time up there. It, heaven is loud. Book of Revelation talks about how there's going to be silence in heaven for a half hour. That, that's going to be weird. That's going to be strange. That's why it was noted, I believe, in the book of Revelation. But it's going to be a fantastic place. All those who are going to dwell there, all of us, we're going to dwell there along with the Jews who have gotten saved. And we know that in the tribulation period, those who come out of that, the one-third of Israel that will not be destroyed, all of them will be saved. And that is how God has set it up. So we have this old covenant and this new covenant. The old covenant is Hagar, Mount Sinai in Arabia, the law, slavery in the physical city of Jerusalem. And the new covenant is represented by Sarah and the womb that was brought to life, the uh, Savior Jesus Christ, the heavenly city, and the grace of God. All of that, those are the two covenants. And I'm, I'm not a covenantal person when I look at the scripture. I believe that there are covenants. I believe there are dispensations, all of those things. I, I have a tendency not to want to be pigeonholed on some of that theology. But it goes on to say in verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of a promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. So those who are Jews are persecuting the ones born of the promise. So the people who have born again into the kingdom of God are being persecuted by the Jews who were under the law. That's the comparison that he's making here. And he goes back and he talks about this. Or actually, it's listed in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 10. It talks about Isaac when he is born. It said, the child grew and was weaned. And on that day, Isaac was weaned. Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now, you know how little kids, they'll torment each other. I can remember being uh, number three in the order of four boys in our household. The oldest was a bully. And uh, he would hold us down. You know, little kids, they can't do anything. You know, a little boy. And uh, the older brother becomes a teenager and you're still, you know, in single digits. And he can have his way with you whatever he wants to do. Until you get older. Then it turns into uh, roughhousing and fighting and breaking shower doors in your mom and dad's bathroom. That, That type of thing takes place. But when you're close in age like that, like a year or two or three, it eventually evens out, right? But when they're younger, they quarrel, they fight. It's mine, my toys, stop it. They both come running in and accusing each other of what's wrong and what the other one did to them, and it just takes place. And you would expect that with kids who are similar in age. How old do you think Ishmael was at this time when Isaac was weaned, and how old do you think Isaac was? Isaac, I've seen two different accounts. He would have been either two or three years old. That's how old he would have been. A toddler, running around, just having a great time. How old do you think Ishmael was? 17. And he's mocking and tormenting the little two or three-year-old. Now, as a mother, Sarah, what would you say? Abraham, get rid of that woman. How dare you let him torment my son, the son of a promise. And he's going... Ah. He's my son too. What do you want me to do? Get rid of him. Send him away. And that's exactly what Abraham did. Abraham was comforted by God saying, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Send him away. Because it was a type, a type of those who would not be saved are not going to participate in the promise in the inheritance of those who would be saved. That's why he's writing all of this. He's writing all of this to remind the Jews in Galatia The way God set things up, he said, you can take this figuratively and it applies to you, the Galatians. 
He says, pay attention. He goes on in verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So if somebody wants to participate in following the law, they become a child of the slave woman and there is no inheritance. In other words, there is no salvation for the one who does not trust in Christ, who tries to keep the law. Now with that, in closing, since 1910, the Boy Scouts of America have offered scouts a way to earn merits to achieve the highest rank of Eagle Scout. To become an Eagle Scout, the highest of eight ranks in the Boy Scouts of America, it is necessary that the Scouts be active in the troop for a period of at least six months, and they must take on an area of responsibility such as a troop guide or treasurer or chaplain aide. There's a couple dozen different areas where they could serve. And that's just a a few of them, uh, to name uh, all those that are available. Now, they also have to have a recommendation. And they have to earn a total of 21 merit badges. Now, I've been backpacking in the high Sierra when we were heading in one direction. All of a sudden, here comes a troop of Boy Scouts. And they are running through the trail all to get their merit badges. And, I mean, we're 40 miles into the wilderness, and there they are, uh, the Boy Scouts who are there. And a lot of them are working to become Eagle Scouts. Now, there are over 2 million Eagle Scouts in the United States that we know of right now. And if all the requirements are met, getting these merit badges, then the young men will qualify for the rank of the Eagle Scout. And... uh, Like I said, total of 21 merit badges are necessary. There are over 137 that are available. And they've changed some of them throughout the years. Like there used to be one beekeeping. They don't have that anymore. No more beekeeping. But there is one citizen of the world. And you can put that badge on your little sash that goes across your chest. Just like the Girl Scouts, they have that as well. Now, in Christianity, people often make a mistake that they think that they have to attain or maintain merit in the eyes of God, get little merit badges, things that they do. It is believed that the more someone does, the more God will be pleased, the more of a Christian you will be, and the more assurance of one positive standing before God will be maintained. This is what John Wesley was doing. All of this is false. Even if someone began doing works from the time of the fall in the garden until now, there would still not be enough good works to uh, accumulated that God would have to grant salvation to the individual. In other words, it is impossible to gain the favor of God through human effort. If you think he can be a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout and just get enough of those merit badges then oh, you're, you're following a false doctrine. And the application for everything that Paul wrote previous to this in chapter 4 is in chapter 5 in verse 1. It says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. He says, Don't follow the law. The law enslaves. It is a burdensome taskmaster. It is relentless and it is condemning. Uh, John Wesley might have spent one third of his life doing all these good works to try to have some type of assurance of the faith that he needed in order to be saved instead of relying on the grace of God for his salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 8, I think most of you know this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And if you have your Bible, you probably want to open up to that section, because I'm going to tell you to do something with this. Because even today, there are people that misinterpret this. They would say that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, It is true that we are not saved by works, but they end up calling faith a work. 
and we cannot be saved by a work. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of theological terms here. Just hopefully it will expand your understanding. There are two words. You ready for them? Synergism and monergism. Yeah, that's it. Synergism and monergism. When somebody says we are saved synergistically, what they are saying is God does his part, we do our part. Now, you might say, well, that's true, isn't it? God called us and we respond. We have free will, but God is sovereign. And, well, some ways of looking at it, you could say, yes, that's true. And there are those who would say that faith, if we do that, if we exercise that, that's a work. And so we cannot be saved by faith apart from God giving us that faith. I don't agree with that. I don't think we are saved synergistically. I still think we are saved through a monergistic mode where it is all God, but we have to exercise faith, but faith is not a work. And they use this particular verse here. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is it? Well, might be grace, might be faith. What, what is it? What is the proper understanding of this passage? Because some will point to it, the gift, being faith, that God gives us the faith to believe and be saved. It has nothing to do with us. I disagree with that from scripture, but I am not into a synergistic mode of salvation. I am into a monergistic way of salvation. Faith, I do not believe, is a work. Now, I'm going to get technical here, and I want you to stick with me on this. I don't want you to be confused, and I'll, I'll try to explain it as clearly, as lucidly as I can. The pronoun it is not referring to faith. And you might say, well, how do you know that? Well, you have to go to the syntax. Syntax being the grammar of the passage in the original language. So we don't eisegete, stick into the scripture what we think is true. We exegete. And for that, you have to go to the actual words in the original language and find out how they are used. For instance, if I speak Spanish... When I do speak Spanish, I have to put a feminine pronoun with a feminine verb. I have to change the verb to match the feminine. I cannot use, uh, like for instance, el guapo. I tell the guys that work with me that speak Spanish, I say, you can call me el guapo. Of course, some of you know what that means. It means handsome. So I I tell them to call me handsome. So, so I'd say L, which is masculine, wapo, which is masculine. They match. They're together. They refer to each other. If I were to say la wapo, that's feminine mixing with masculine, it doesn't work. They don't go together. That's improper Spanish. That's the best way that I can kind of translated over so when you read this particular passage faith is feminine when you're looking at the actual word faith a verb here or like to believe and gift is neutral which means well what does it point to does it point to grace or does it point to faith it points to neither one it points to salvation salvation by grace through faith it's not referring to grace it's not referring to faith it's referring to salvation you could say it like this for by grace are you saved through faith and this not of yourselves it the salvation is a gift of god that's how it's supposed to read
And so there are people who take the theology, and this comes from the Reformed and, uh, and Arminiast, the Calvinist and Arminiast sides. I, I just want to make sure that we understand that there's no work that we can do to be saved. There's nothing that we can perform in our life that will get us there. There's nothing that the Galatian Christians could do to earn God's favor. So salvation is a gift of God. My encouragement to you this morning is to rest in the finished work of God. Your salvation is secure if you are truly saved. John six thirty seven says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, or I will never reject them. And have you done this? You know, Have you said, God, forgive me for my sins? I trust in you. I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. Well, the work of salvation is not the source of our salvation. Work is not the source. I hope I've made this clear today because there are so many believers out there that they're working for it, that they have to do something. If they don't do something, they feel like they have fallen short. God already knows. Not only have we fallen short, but we are harmful. We are even evil. And we might want to think better ourselves than we should on that, but it's not true. And so you just sit back you let your shoulders drop. I guess it's time. You let your shoulders drop and you just simply say, God, thank you for the salvation. And once you rest in that, then the works flow as a result. We've done nothing except believe. And that's our part. We believe, but it is not a work. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for the clarity of your word that there's nothing we can do to be saved. But we are to respond. We are to say, please save us. And for those who don't understand, who aren't able to rest in that, Lord, I pray that you would give them new understanding. And just like the Galatians were confused, we know that you are not the author of confusion, that the salvation that you bring is not by works but by grace through faith. We thank you for this gift, Lord. May we praise you until the day we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.